Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and Dale and Oliver and I are here to fill you in on some very interesting material that's been wandering around the uh, both the internet and the uh, media in the last week. We have our press release, 862, which deals with Lobbyland. Lobbyland, we can see, is very much alive and well in this country. And John Menadieu, on his blog, Pearls and Irritations, has been running a very special uh, series of articles on it. Because in Canberra is where the decisions are made and where all the lobbyists gather. You can forget about the rest of us. We're starting to work out how this world works, how this country of ours works such that um, business is going to save us because they have pretty good lobbyists in Canberra. But um, the article that we're most interested in is by Chris Bonner and Lindsay Connors. And Oliver will be reading this to you. But I want to tell you, first of all, that dogs have been talking about the lobbyist problem for the last 50 years. So that is press release 862. As well as that, we're going to be dealing with a very interesting report that has been written by a man called Morris. And Mr. Morris has worked for the World Bank and he's been an advisor to many governments, UNICEF, you name it. This man is a top-notch world economist, and he has worked out that in the next few years, the state schools of this country, the public education systems of this country, are going to be short-changed well over $19 billion, and it could be closer to $27 billion if you take everything into account, and the private schools are going to be overfunded $1 billion, the wealthy ones. So we'll be talking about that as well. And Dale will be telling us about how state schools have been losing out on crucial funds and fun as the fates have been scrapped in this year of the pandemic, the year of the plague. But first of all, let's get back to our press release, 862, Lobbyland. Lobbyists are undermining public trust in our political institutions. They are most prolific in Canberra. Lobby firms infest the suburbs of Barton and Kingston. It's easy walking distance to Parliament House, the National Press Club and the major departments. A real lobby land with the Minerals Council of Australia, the Australian Medical Association, Lockheed Martin, the Australian Pharmacy Guild, the Business Council of Australia, and last but not least, the Catholic Education Commission and the Council for Independent Schools. In an extraordinary article published on the John Menadieu blog, Pearls and Irritations, Chris Bonner and Lindsay Connors have outlined how the private school lobby groups captured the ears of both major parties. It's worth reproducing in full, and we're going to do that. But before we do, we'd like to give you a blast from the past, from the DOGS website itself at www.adogs.info. Why? 
because what Chris Bonner and Lindsay Connors are saying is only what the dogs have been saying for the past half century. The corruption of our democracy and its cornerstone, our public education system, by lobbyists from the religious sector has been the subject of a number of submissions to various Senate committees over this time by the dogs. So we refer you to excerpts from a submission that was made in 2000 by Ray Nielsen, and uh, we'll give you the uh, actual, uh, where you can go to the full, the full um, press release. It's press release number 19. We're now at 862, so it's some time ago, but it is still very relevant. This is what Ray put in his, his uh, press release and his submission to the Senate committee that was talking about education and worried about inequalities in education back in 2000. Massive gains in state aid are the result of private dealings between clerics and members or agents of the executive. State aid corrodes the workings of government, he says. The following are a few examples. Cardinal Gilroy and Archbishop J. Carroll met with Mr. R. Heffron in 1962. Bishop Moran and Sir Henry Bolte in 1966 before the granting of state aid in 1967, had a meeting. Mr Mick Young and Archbishop Jim, Jim Carroll, prior to the 1972 Whitlam election, had a meeting. Bishop F. Carroll, Father Frank Martin, Father J. Williams and Mon Signor J. Burke and Senator Carrick had a very interesting meeting in the late 1970s. Before Hawke's ALP government was elected in 1983, prominent Canberra personality and chairman were meeting with him. In 1998, bishops, certain bishops of Mr Howard outmanoeuvred Beasley. They quietly upped the state aid offer. Beasley at that time was the Minister for Education. This meeting and behind-the-scenes deals done in the last few years. Now, I'm sorry, I'll go back on that. I think Mr Beasley was the leader of the Labor Party and they lost the election and they um, they had a, had a state aid auction again. Now, the meeting between John Howard and the bishops and the behind-the-scenes deals done in the last few years are largely the reason for the doubling of state aid within eight years. The late Archbishop Carroll, who was the greatest of political strategists and manipulators, once said, when he was asked about writing a history of biography, he said, no one would believe it. Well, dogs have no illusions about Archbishop Carroll or any of the archbishops since. Their reply to Archbishop Carroll would be, try us. Now, in this um, submission, Ray also went back to talk about the bottom of the schoolyard schemes. They're still going on, and people are saying, oh, isn't this terrible? But they knew about them years and years and years ago, and the dogs have been trying to expose them for the last 50 years. Very early in the state aid grab, the major beneficiary of state aid, the Roman Catholic Church, woke up 
to the lamentable weakness of those who were supposed to protect the public interest, namely the expenditure of public money. For instance, they recognised the financial benefit of keeping needy schools needy. They withheld money from those schools that should have gone to them, and they still are. They switched the categories of schools, and they used the frontier groups to set up further needy schools. Dogs do not have to quote themselves in the 1970s and 80s. We only need to point to some statements of people who were involved in the Schools Commission. They were prepared to talk after they left the Schools Commission, but they didn't write dissenting reports necessarily or speak up when they were actually on the Commission. Dr Ken McKinnon, who was the Commission Chairman until 1980, said that it the needs policy is not illegal, just slippery. It expected everybody to play the game by the declared rules. It's like income tax. Everybody manoeuvres themselves to benefit in the best possible way. So isn't that a shocking statement from somebody who was in charge of needy schools and the expenditure of public money? It's an admission that he couldn't get on top of religious men who played the game the system. Joan Kerner also said, it isn't sufficient to say that we will give aid according to need. We know that the needs policy can be bastardised by even a group as honest as the Schools Commission. And McKinnon said again, according to um, Anne O'Brien, who was a good Catholic member of the Commission, as Chair of the Schools Commission, McKinnon was particularly concerned with the inability of some sectors of the Catholic education to demonstrate their accountability in respect of Commonwealth funding. So um, you can see that the dogs were complaining over 50 years ago about what is now going on. So what is happening and what we're now going to hear about the lobbyists in Canberra uh, in education something that has been going on for a long, long time. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids, strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
Well, here we are back again on the DOGS program and we're dealing with our press release 862 on Lobby Land. Now, Lobby Land is a, a term that has been invented by Mr. Menadieu on his blog and Oliver is now going to read to you a very interesting article by Chris Bonner and Lindsay Connors on Lobby Land in Canberra in education. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. In all areas of public policy, there are groups that engage in advocacy and lobbying to influence public opinion and to advance their special interests. These groups have been obvious and successful over half a century of increasingly privatised school education. Where such groups are publicly funded and not-for-profit organisations, such as in Australia's private school sector, there is a fine line between advocacy and lobbying. The purpose of advocacy is to make the organisation's views known on particular issues, to identify problems and to argue for solutions to these in order to garner public support. The lobbying process is often less open and transparent than advocacy. Lobbying generally has a more direct and specific political purpose, involving direct contact with governments or political parties in order to influence legislation. In the case of the private school sector, attempts to influence governments take the form of lobbying rather than advocacy. The power and influence of lobbyists in that sector has evolved over six decades in Australia to the point where their impact on policy is probably unequaled elsewhere. While much of this lobbying is about power, influence and economic advantage, school education reaches deep into the hearts, minds and aspirations of every family. School education can be about their children, their well-being and their future, while more broad views of schools are about community, society and nationhood. Such differences have created a setting for bitter, high-stakes disputes. Labour historian Graham Freudenberg once declared that the longest, deepest, most poisonous debate in Australia has been about government aid to church schools. The grounds for conflict go well back. Public education is around 150 years old, but it was established against the Catholic Church resistance and was always going to create a lingering sore. Catholic schools led the charge for public funding especially in 1962 when Catholic school families in Goldburn, New South Wales, moved their children into their local public schools because the state government wouldn't financially support Catholic schools. In lobbying terms, this single act was stunningly successful and is seen as a symbolic start of state aid to non-government schools. The high-fee, mainly Protestant private schools, soon joined the queue for public funding. They were the alma mater of many conservative politicians and it was no great leap for the schools to build their contacts with the Liberal and country parties. Both sides of politics also courted the Catholic vote, with school funding becoming the bargaining chip. The ALP shifted ground many times to retain this vote, and the coalition developed a carefully constructed affinity with the Catholic schools and church hierarchy. The latter had quite a unique power. On many occasions, agreements on school funding would stand or fall depending on the messages emanating from the church pulpit on the following Sunday. The power of the church became especially evident in the close relationship between Prime Minister John Howard and the Catholic Cardinal George Bell. Mm. From the 1970s onwards, the private school peak groups became increasingly well-organised advocates and effective lobbies with multiple roles. In the case of Catholic schools, apart from their links to the church, they are also the school authority and in more recent times have engaged external lobbyists as well. 
Both Catholic and independent sectors have a significant number of backbenchers on both sides of politics willing to press their case in the party room. In some contrast, public schools are less well represented in the nation's parliaments. There is also an ongoing shuffle of key people between private school peak groups and politics. Ex-Labour politicians Greg Crafter and Jacinta Collins are two examples, seven respectively as chair and executive director of the NCEC. Both private school sectors have long enjoyed a seat around any government table where policies impacting on schools are discussed. In some contrast, those representing public schools, mainly the state government, have been managers of rather than advocates for public schools. This has left teacher unions and affiliates as the most prominent advocates and lobbyists for public schools, something which has made them an easy target for conservatives. At critical times, including in later discussions on the implementation of the Gonski recommendations, the teachers unions have been excluded. For decades, private school peak groups and lobbies have enjoyed a perfect storm of opportunity and advantage. Federally, their political allies were in more often than not were in power more often than not, and it was relatively easy to undermine or reverse reforms engineered by shorter-lived Labour labor governments. This was especially obvious following the Carmel 1973 and Gonski 2011 reviews. They were also able to fill the many policy vacuums created by three-year electoral cycles. Australian federalism has played a critical role. Responsibility for public funding of public and private schools is unevenly and irrationally split between the federal and state governments. This, in part, a product of private system lobbying and key bonus for private schools is that they are mainly funded by the relatively cashed-up federal government. The complexities of public funding have made the lobbying task easier for some. State governments are less inclined to lobby. The federal government for public schools. In response on such occasions, the federal government can cheerfully assert but they don't run any schools and redirect the solution back to state treasuries. In some contrast, private schools can lobby for funding from anywhere. They have very little financial skin in the game. That's all for this section. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, we'll have a bit of a break, and then uh, Oliver will come back with the final um, part of this very interesting analysis of Lobbyland. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people. The length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land. Brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation Day one, and I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. This year, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au.
Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program. And um, before the break, Oliver was uh, reading to you from an article by Chris Bonner and Lindsay Connors on Lego on Lobby Land. I was nearly going to say Lego Land. It's <laughs> Lobby Land, <laughs> and um, he'll continue now and finish it for me. Thank you very much, Jenny. Both governments and lobby groups engage in deliberate obfuscation. Depending on one's preferred source, school funding figures vary considerably, depending on the source and the purpose in presenting them. Even public sources such as the Productivity Commission and My School don't count the money going to schools in the same way. Funding figures can be presented in very different ways. Gross increases, net increases, percentage increases, funding per student, take your pick. My school data has managed to create some order out of this chaos in the process pointing to deliberate misrepresentation in debates about schools. Other information, such as principal and teacher salaries, is still largely missing from official sources. The activities of private school lobbies have helped keep certain issues to the political forefront at the expense of more enduring problems. One funding issue which has resonated for decades is no school shall lose a dollar, indicating that funding reform in the pursuit of equity will only get a green light if every school comes out ahead. Being the only party that has seriously attempted funding reform, Labour is the most frequent target of taunts about hit lists of schools to lose funding, especially during the 2004 federal election. Despite assuming the status of urban myth, the hit list accusation has lingered. In effect, redistribution of overall resources between the sectors essential if the twin goals of equity and excellence are to be achieved, is rarely on any reform agenda. To avoid creating losers, redistribution can only be achieved through increasing total funding. There are many examples of how this plays out. When she announced the Gonski Review in April 2010, Education Minister Julia Gillard reassured a conservative think tank that no school would lose a dollar. But the Bishop's Commission for Catholic Education applied the required pressure, and Gillard announced a one-year extension of the existing Howard-era funding. Coalition Education spokesman Christopher Pine dismissed this as a desperate election fix, What one which was later overshadowed by the Abbott-Pine pre-election declaration of a unity ticket with Labour on Gonski funding. The Coalition's antics in the period since the Gonski review reaffirmed its decade-long alliance with private school peak groups. In 2014, Pine assured a a private school peak group conference that the coalition had an emotional commitment to private schools. Speaking earlier to another friendly audience, Tony Abbott said that it was in the Liberal Party's DNA to fund independent and Catholic schools. All through this period, the influence of the Independent Schools Council of Australia 
and the National Catholic Education Commission can be seen in the wording of speeches and in various submissions, including the Gonski Review. None of this diminishes the role and impact of public sector campaigns organised by the AEU. The big difference lies in the nature of the links and levels of transparency. Recent years have seen some variation in rusted on links and myths. In 2016 to 2017, the Turnbull Coalition Federal Government advanced new school funding proposals, popularly known as Gonski 2.0. Turnbull's Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, admitted that many private schools were overfunded and criticised special deals in school funding. Private school groups responded by pressing the alarm bells and targeting the coalition. In an unusual twist itself, uh, a tribute to the lobbying power of the private sector. Accusations about a private school hit list came from the ALP. Additionally, the Catholic school's lobby was rewarded, as has been the habit for decades, by a pledge of an additional $250 million from Labour. The Gonski 2.0 initiative directed the angst of the Catholic lobby towards the coalition. During a crucial by-election at the time, uh, the Catholic lobby made 30,000 robocalls urging residents of Batman to vote for Labour. This direct intervention in politics by a tax-exempt charity raised a complaint to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. In an early response, the Commissioner stated that charities have a right to advocate, but they cannot have a purpose of promoting or opposing a political party or candidate for political office. However, it seems that the Commission is still to resolve this complaint. For obvious reasons, other priorities have dominated discussions about schools during 2020, but the structural and funding problems which have beggared school education for decades are still with us. The Gonski 2.0 funding changes resolved a political rather than a school funding problem. The state-federal split in sourcing funding for schools isn't working, partly due to short electoral cycles which keep governments constantly in election mode. It is a system highly prone to cost and blame shifting, and, as always, to special deals. Even a cursory glance at the recent history of school education amply demonstrates the power of lobbies and their reg- regressive impact on even the most timid of reforms. It is in the public interest to have achieving schools operating in an equitable framework. For years, the indicators have shown that we are falling well short. If school education is any indication, The circumstances in which the lobby groups are allowed to operate, as well as how they operate, need serious reconsideration. Education, legislation and accompanying regulations in Australia are overly reflective of special deals done behind closed doors by governments and political parties with lobbyists, rather than through structures and processes that enable rational and informed debate. This works against public trust and durable consensus. As we have done in the past, we need to encourage and enable widespread involvement in ongoing reviews of school education and to support the conventional democratic processes which see recommendations debated and legislated. In school education, this was achieved following the Carmel Review in 1973, the Hawke Government Review in 1984 and the Gonski Review in 2013. But once legislated, the implementation of review recommendations needs to be at arm's length of lobbyists and legislators. The Schools Commission in the 1970s and 1980s did its best work when this occurred. The National School Resourcing Board could potentially do the same. 
This has to be done in conjunction with a major review of public service at both state and federal levels, with a focus on who they serve, how they serve, and the resources they need to be free and fearless. Good policy will never emerge out of a diminished and denuded public service, and Australia will be forever poorly served if the only alternatives emanate from self-serving interest groups. And that's it. Thank you very much, Jean. Yes, that's very interesting. And, of course, what they're not pointing out is that the, the public service hasn't only been denuded, it's also been politicised, and in between policymakers and the politicians, you've got a new breed. Um, they are the advisors, and some of them are just wet behind their ears, just out from the university, but they belong to the right party. Uh, uh, they're what we call, the dogs call, apparatchiks, um, and they never actually do any other job but uh, get involved in politics. Uh, they eventually get themselves into um, an MP's role and nice, uh, the nice pay and superannuation that follows with that. But, um, yes, thank you so much, Oliver. Uh, it was a long article, but um, we hope that our listeners found it interesting because that is the way the world is working and it's why the dogs are all for separation of church and state. Unfortunately, as we prophesied back in the 1960s, the churchmen have got their, their claws into our treasuries and also into the power structures of our democratic state. And it is a very undemocratic situation and quite grievous for many of our children. So that's enough on the lobby land for the moment. We'll come back with some very interesting material from Dale. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Well, that was very interesting about lobby land, but the private schools, of course, can get all the money they want from the government, but uh, public schools can't. They're left short of resources. So the parents have got to dig deep and uh, raise thousands every year for very basic things in our state schools, which they do. They go to a lot of trouble with their fun fairs and so on, but not this year. And Dale's going to tell us about the shortfall for public education when the parents have got to stay at home. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got an article by Adam Carey here. Uh, it's titled, State Schools Lose Out on Crucial Funds and Fun as Fates Scrapped. State primary schools are put off, are putting off building new playgrounds and fixing rundown sports facilities this year after cancelling fates that are that often raise tens of thousands of dollars from the community. Coronavirus restrictions 
have put a stop to fates and fairs that are usually a, typically a, a government school's biggest source of community cash for student facilities. Beaumaris North Primary in Melbourne's southeast generally raises a, between 65000 and 80000 at its biennial fate, which was originally scheduled for March, before being postponed to December, then ultimately cancelled. Previously, the school f- used the funds raised at its fate to put air conditioning in classrooms. This year, it hoped to raise $65,000 for a new junior playground and to repair the cracked surface of its netball court, Principal Cheryl Duffy said. Instead, it is at least $10,000 out of pocket for the amusement rides it's booked uh, and must wait two years for its next big fundraiser. We have an agreement with the local principals in our network. We all hold them on alternate years so we don't clash with each other, Ms Duffy said. We will have to wait for our next fate in 2022. It might just be a bit of polyfiller on the netball court until we get there. Gail McCarty, Executive Officer at Parents Victoria, said the mass cancellation of fates and carnivals would have a huge financial impact on many public schools, some of which count, count on them to cover essentials. Such a large proportion of public schools rely on these monies not only for the educational extras for their student, but to contribute to operating budgets and to support those with the least in their schools, Ms McCarty said. They wouldn't have to do this if governments funded schools to 100% of the school resource standard, she said. An equitable system would level out the opportunities for all students and do away with the reliance on local communities for fundraising dollars. The school resource standard is an estimate of how much public funding a school needs to meet its students' educational needs. According to a report commissioned by the Australian Education Union, combined state and federal funding for schools between this year and 2023 will fall $19 billion short of meeting the standard. Funding for Victorian public schools, which get 87% of of the resource standard, will fall $5.45 billion short, the report calculated. The report's author, education economist Adam Roris, said the standard was the target amount of money required for students to achieve the minimal numeracy and literacy standards. It's the real tangible stuff that a student can benefit from every day without even looking at the condition of a building or whether or not it's got a good playground, Mr Roris said. Under a funding agreement signed between the Morrison and Andrews governments last year, Funding for Victorian public schools will rise to 95% of the standard by 2029. Still not 100%. Anne-Marie Kleiman, president of the Victorian Primary Principals Association, said coronavirus restrictions had helped some schools save on utility bills and salaries for emergency relief teachers. Many schools in lower socioeconomic communities also do not have fates, she said. There are some schools that don't get the opportunity to fundraise because you can't ask people that don't actually have money to be chipping in all the time. Kate Barletta, principal of Essendon North Primary, said the lost opportunity to unite the community was as disappointing as the missed chance to raise the money for upgraded play spaces. 
the school had hoped to celebrate its 100th birthday last month with a fair, but settled for a virtual party instead. The children were sent a birthday card, balloon and party hat in the mail. We still made the most of it. I guess it's because it's become about connecting with our community rather than the fundraising element of it, Ms Barletta said. The spokesperson for the Department of Education said schools were able to raise funds in line with coronavirus restrictions, including online events and activities. The department is offering support to any schools that may experience any cash budget shortfalls during the pandemic, the spokesperson said. But still, the school resourcing standards, you know, they figured it out, what it was, and still public schools don't get 100% of what the bare minimum is. It's just mind-boggling. But anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, look, many thanks for that. Um, this 19 billion figure is a very interesting figure indeed. Um, and uh, we'll have a bit of a break and then I'd like to come back and we'll listen to Karina Hayfort from the AEU. But we'll also talk a little bit more about this Roris report because it's a very substantial piece of work. Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, before the break, uh, thanks to Dale, we were hearing about the problems that our little state schools have got because they are not fully funded according to the Gonski resource standard. They just aren't. That's partly the problem of the federal government and it's also the responsibility of the state government and we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, we'll be listening to what Karina Haythorpe has to say, but I'd like to say a little bit more about this Roris. Uh, report. The Roris report um, is called the School Resourcing Standard in Australia and its impacts on public schools. Now the School Resourcing Standard is um, a very technical idea. It is the minimum funding required and it was worked out by Mr David Gonski back in 2010-11. It's made up of the base amount for all primary and secondary students and up to six needs-based loadings for students, priority cohorts and disadvantaged schools. Now, the private sector have done very well out of this, but the public sector haven't because um, the SRS is only a minimum funding standard required so that schools can have at least 80% of their students achieving learning outcomes above the national minimum standard in NAPLAN for reading and numeracy. Not for anything else, only reading and numeracy. And it does not provide for 20% 
of the hardest to reach students in literacy and numeracy, all of whom, of course, are in public schools. It's not an aspirational funding standard. It's an essential minimum level of funding for school systems. And we are discovering that the public systems throughout Australia are not getting 100% of this resourcing standard and some private schools are getting well over 100%. This is just how unfair and inequitable the current funding system of education is in Australia. It also means that if the private schools were taken over, we're already paying for them and we actually save quite a lot of money. But part of the problem is that the Commonwealth has agreed to deliver at least 80% of this SRA funding for private schools by 2023, and it's only agreed to deliver 20% to the public schools. So it's 80% for one-third of Australian children and 20% for two-thirds of Australian children. That's how the federal government regards the children. Children in public schools are only worth uh, one quarter of a child in a private school. Isn't that shocking? Mm. Well, the state governments are expected to make up the shortfall. But there's another problem. There's a thing called a capital depreciation tax. Uh, Now, this is for state governments. State governments are allowed, when they look at how much they're going to spend on education, to put in a 4% depreciation on all of their buildings. The private schools don't have to do this, but the state states can, which means that they get out of that amount of money um, for, for then uh, making up the shortfall for, for public education. The majority of the 4% allowable figure is absorbed by the capital depreciation line item. And the effect of this tax, because it's like a tax, is that states and territories can reduce by 4% the amount of funding they need to make up as part of their contribution towards the SRS level funding for public schools. And if you actually count this in, this 4% tax on public education provision by the states then the actual shortfall is not $19 billion at all. It's much closer to $27 billion by 2022-23. And this, of course, is what is concerning the Australian Education Union. Mm -hmm. But they at least now have good raw figures to fight with, thanks to Mr Norris, Morris. Mr Morris, by the way, has worked for the World Bank, has worked for UNICEF, and has also um, been an advisor just to state and federal governments in Australia. He is an, what you call an educational economist, and he gives um, analyses and suggestions and recommendations all around the world to different governments. So he needs to be listened to. He's not, um, he's not just a lobbyist, as we've been talking to earlier. And the Australian Education Union have obviously employed him to do this work. And uh, 
I'll just repeat once again what he is saying. The federal government will overfund the wealthiest private schools by over $1 billion by 2023. While they have put a limit on funding for public schools, there's no maximum amount of funding set for private schools. So if there is an election in the uh, intervening years, which there will be, there will be another state aid auction for the private schools. But on top of the massive recurrent funding shortfall of $19 billion, state or territory funding contributions can also include school transport costs, asset depreciation, that's this 4% tax, depreciation tax, and the cost of running education standards authorities. These authorities provide service to both public and private schools, yet they're charged entirely as expenses for public schools only. And that has been going on since 1964, where the public um, public authorities that have dealt with private schools and been used by private schools, they have not contributed a penny towards their uh, upkeep, and the cost has all come out of the funding for our children in public schools. Now, Loris calls this, listen to these words, a segregated vault against public schools that deprives them of close to a further $2 billion a year. In total, this brings the combined funding shortfall to $27 billion. These are big figures. Mm. These are big, big figures, but they pale, of course, when we realise that um, Josh Freudenberg is, uh, is just putting us into a trillion dollars of debt so that he can somehow keep failed businesses afloat and hope, hope that people who are, have got a job and are, are on a pretty high salary will spend uh, their taxation dollars. Now, the AU Federal President Karina Hothorpe has got quite a lot to say about this, and uh, she has been up and at it in the week before the budget, and I think it's very significant that this report was brought out before the budget. And she points out the teachers, our public school teachers, have been working harder than ever to deliver a great public education to larger and more complex classes, so this shortfall in the next few years is really quite horrific given the situation that our young people are in. The uh, Canberra gurus think that, that somehow business is going to save our young children from being the precariat. We call them the precariat rather than um, the, the future even proletariat. Mm. because they live from hand-to-mouth with the job situation in a very precarious situation indeed. So why aren't they concerned about our children in public schools? COVID-19 has already highlighted the deep divide between the private and the public schools and it shone a light on the level of unmet need caused by the Commonwealth's funding failures in recent years, not just in recent years, the last 50 years. So let's listen to Karina Hoythorpe and see exactly 
what she had to say in the last week. Hi everyone. I want to give you a quick update on an independent report that's just been released by Adam Rorris. Mr Rorris is a former advisor to the Australian Government and the World Bank and his report reveals that Australian public schools will miss out on $19 billion in funding over the next four years because of the Federal Government's school funding legislation and agreements. And it probably won't surprise you to know, the report also reveals that the Government is overfunding the wealthiest private schools and while they've put a cap on funding for public schools, there's no maximum amount of funding set for private schools. A $19 billion shortfall is a huge number, and it can be difficult to understand the impact of that funding gap. What it means is public schools which educate the vast majority of students are missing out on benefiting from additional funding for extra literacy and numeracy help or any specialist support needed for our students to reach their full potential. What it means is that schools are missing out on more teachers, more education support staff and more one-on-one attention for students. We know that teachers are working harder than ever to deliver a great education to larger and more complex classes and that many students need extra help in the classroom. And we know that this year COVID-19 has highlighted the deep divide between private and public schools. The Federal Government has a budget next week and budgets are about setting priorities for what is important to spend government money on. Well, there can be no greater investment for our nation than investing in public education. Our message to the government is clear. The Commonwealth is failing our public schools and they must fix the deep inequity in school funding by addressing the massive shortfalls for public schools in next week's budget. You can help deliver that message by contacting your local MP and getting involved in our school funding campaign. Thanks for your support. This budget has failed public education. For our preschool schools and TAPE, we know that the key to economic recovery for Australia is to invest in public education. Unfortunately, tonight's budget has not provided the infrastructure funding for uh, TAFE and for schools in particular, and it has not provided recurrent funding to ensure that we can have additional teachers, that we can provide more support for those students who need it the most, and that we can invest in teaching and learning. So parents, teachers and students right across Australia will be very, very disappointed by this budget. To invest in education is simply the greatest investment that our nation can make, and that is an opportunity that the Morrison government has failed to deliver on with respect to 2020 budget. Well, we're still with the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We're here every Saturday at 12, and we're still with you. Uh, and uh, this week, in the, in the coming week, our children will be going back to our public schools. But um, we thought that you might like to hear what it's like for teachers and children over in America who have already been forced back into the classroom in a very dangerous situation indeed. Over to um, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got uh, an article by Diane Ravish, a a dog's favourite. Carol Burris, Back to School, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Carol Burris interviewed teachers, students and administrators about their experiences returning to school. As you might expect, she encountered a range of reactions. The Network for Public Education is following 37 districts in New York, Pennsylvania and Connecticut that reopened, either hybrid or full-time. Of the 23 districts that responded to our inquiry regarding remote learners, the average rate of students who opted not to attend in person was 21%. 
Percentages ranged from 6% of the school population to 50%. Larger percentages of students of colour are associated with higher remote rates. Superintendent Joe Roy said he has been carefully examining patterns among the 25% of students whose families chose remote learning in his district of Bethlehem. For the most part, they are students from affluent families who have academic supports for learning at home or, conversely, are from the least affluent homes. The families of his district's students of colour, many of whom work in local warehouses, were hit harder by the pandemic and therefore are more reticent to send their children back to school. Roy's neighbouring district, Allentown, where 86% of the students are black or Latino, decided to go all virtual after a parent survey showed a majority were not ready for in-person learning. One middle school teacher with whom I spoke, who requested anonymity, said he hopes that the schools open soon. Technology for remote learning has been an issue, he told me, from hardware to poor connections. We are losing kids, he said. Our kindergarten enrolment is much lower than it has been in previous years. Of a class of 19, maybe 17 of my students log on to my early morning class. When I meet them later in the day, 12 or fewer show up. A six and a half hour day on Zoom is brutal. Some are keeping their cameras off and others don't respond. Many of my students can't work independently. The challenges of in-person learning. Over half of the 37 districts we are following now bring some or all students back full-time. Those schools that are using hybrid typically split students into two small cohorts that share the same teacher. Some bring those cohorts back three days one week and two days the following week. Others bring the cohorts back only two days a week on consecutive days or staggered day with a fifth day when all stay at home. Although I spoke, although those I spoke with are glad to be back, school is certainly not the same as before the pandemic. My youngest grandchildren returned to in-person school for only two days last week and they were ecstatic. The school, the schools did everything that was required. Masks, social distancing, hand washing. Who knew that children loved school so much? Well, isn't that lovely? Our children, um, love their schools because they've got good teachers and they have such interesting times. Uh, I think that uh, we should be all thanking our public school teachers who've done such a wonderful job with our children and our grandchildren. I know I do. I know that um, I, I think they've just done a fabulous job. So uh, although some of the material that we cover here might make you disappointed and worried about the future of public education in this country. While our teachers are abroad and our parents are working hard too, uh, we will survive and we will do well because uh, the business uh, model of the private sector is about to get a rather big shock. So we'll just have to stand by and watch Meanwhile, the dogs are here every week fighting for public education and uh, it's about time for us to leave you. Uh, you can find out more about us from our website at www.adogs.info and you can always go 
to our 3CR program, which is podcast on the 3CR website. And it's bye for now. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.